sounds like. And welcome to Radio Free Brooklyn, Objection to the Rule. My name is Matthew. We got another good show coming for you today. And we're going to play for you the most thrilling theme song you have ever heard in the world. Coming up in five, four, three, two, one. All right, guys, welcome back to Objection to the Rule, live on Radio Free Brooklyn. How you doing? Happy Sunday. Doing pretty good. Yeah? Yeah. Happy Sunday. Yeah, Happy we're, Sunday. We're here with Zoe and Teresa. Zoe, I've never heard your opinion on our incredible theme song. I'm kind of being sarcastic, but I do think it's a very... Uh, <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. But- no, right. You know, it gets you going, riles you up, um, gets you geared up for an hour of, of news, so... Yeah, and, and our, <laughs> Teresa, I think uh, a couple months ago I asked you what you think the theme song should be, if, if it was up to you. If it was up to me, it would be some crazy, like, band banging some deep-ass beat, like, pop <laughs> deepish, like, from the gritty basements of Brooklyn, you know, like, objecting some rules. If it was up to me, it would be real gritty. So I'm going to let y'all <laughs> definitely have some input on that because we want to make sure we keep a nice equilibrium on the show, right? Yeah, I I, I kind of like the sound of whatever you, you just said, though. It, it sounds good to me. Like, <laughs> to be continued. Yeah. All right. This week, we'll be talking about the Nile in Africa, denial in America, cashless stores and people with no cash. Uh, far too many people detained at the border and far few arrests arrested for causing an opioid epidemic in America. So we got a show packed of good stories for you today. Yeah, yeah. Th- thanks for reading that little blip I wrote. I was trying to be clever with all those puns, but yeah, I should have let you read it, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. You, you did a much better job than I would have. Um, also, well, okay. why don't you kick it off with the world news, Matt? Okay, world news. I did a story on a big dam in Ethiopia. Damn. Yeah, <laughs> and I I had a pun in the title, and I got a pun for this title. You ready for it? Okay. Damn it. Uh, (laughs) Al Jazeera published a piece of interactive journalism on the economic and ecological impacts of damming the Nile. Interactive journalism involves the use of multiple forms of media to display the information of the story. In this case, it is a series of maps, graphs, and videos to supplement the text. I recommend the piece. It's on Al Jazeera. Uh, It was a wonderful work of journalistic craft, as well as just being very uh, good information that I didn't know about. This piece is on the Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. Quote, for the 280 million people from 11 countries who live along the banks of the Nile, it symbolizes life. For Ethiopia, a new dam homes the promise of much-needed electricity. For Egypt, the fear of a devastating water crisis. End quote. The central paradox of damming the Nile is hydropower is a green form of electricity, but also can be ecologically damaging, not to mention the economic and political issues raised by water insecurity. The dam is filled in 10, if the dam is filled in 10 years, that would result in a loss of 14% 
of water in the Nile Delta, Egypt's food basket, as they call it, and 18% loss of agricultural terrain. If the dam is filled in five years, up to half the yield of agricultural terrain could be lost. The shorter amount of time that it takes to fill the reservoir that would power the dam means the more water would be diverted from the Nile River. That's why. So if it's filled in five years, it will be worse than if it's filled in 10 or Mm. 20 years, depending on how they do it. Egypt, which controls 90% of its water, which 90% of its water comes from the Nile, is exposed and in danger if the dam is constructed in a way that compromises the water supply. But Ethiopia, about 66% of the people in Ethiopia currently do not have electricity. So you Mm. can see how both sides uh, have something uh, to gain and to lose from this dam. Yeah. It's further complicated because who controls the Nile? Egypt controls... 66%. 66%. Oh, that's interesting. I, I either That's either a, an accident where I use the same number or it's a coincidence that Egypt controls 66% of the Nile, even though there are uh, many countries involved in the river. The control of the river stems from colonial era, era treaties brokered by Britain. Ethiopia currently has no control over the decision to dam the river or those old treaties. So Ethiopia is kind of going rogue uh, by creating this dam. So there's a lot of uh, regional conflicts resulting from that. Wow. Mm. And it's, it's tough when like so many people depend on the same water resource, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's tricky because we, we like to think that things are clear, like hydroelectricity is good, but dams, you know, there, there are a lot of trade-offs. The Three Gorge Dam in, uh, in China, when that was created, that had a lot of more political and social mm. uh, fallouts like a lot of people were displaced without um but the government was just like yo we need a big ass dam (laughs) so we're gonna take over this space and you just gotta go right yeah 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 wow yeah but it seems like also ethiopia is you know if, if if these are sort of colonial era divisions where you know, Britain said, okay, Egypt gets this much of the dam and Ethiopia, you get nothing. Yeah. Then also you kind of want to see Ethiopia, you Move know, forward. claim, yeah, yeah, yeah claim, claim some, some of, space. Right. Yeah. And recently Egypt, uh, after they had the military takeover and coup, uh, and they've done uh, uh, a fair amount of uh, bad acting. Part of me is just like, yeah, suck it, Egypt. <laughs> You know, but there's like, wait, no, I shouldn't. (laughs) Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, you definitely want to think that people will will try to be divisive um, of something so essential as a water reservoir Mm. to think about people's lives and how it really impacts, you know, if the way obviously the way they've been doing is not working. So it's it's funny when nature um, really kind of flies in the like doesn't care that countries exist or that our borders exist. Yeah. Denial you know, goes through all these countries and it kind of like forces us to have to acknowledge that countries are connected because yeah. we're all on the same land. Even Absolutely. But the border seems so strong, right? Like Egypt and Ethiopia, in my mind, Ethiopia, I know very little about uh, like some coffee, I suppose. Egypt. <laughs> I mean, Egypt, you have pyramids, but like, I didn't even think, I think a lot of white people uh, like myself didn't even know Egypt was in Africa until like <laughs> embarrassingly late because... Wow. You know, that's a very interesting way to say that. When I was in some of my grad school classes, we had um, a young lady there who was from uh, northern Africa 
And in conversation, she kind of explained the rest of the Africans as the Africans. And it was a a moment of contention for everybody in the class. Like, what do you mean? Like Libya is in Africa. And that sort of like distinction between Northern Africans and Southern Africans, if you will, makes it like it's not connected at all. It's a continent Mm. uh, full of African people. You know what I mean? Um, Very interesting perspective on that. But, you know, the the Nile is massive. I went to Egypt a couple of years ago and it definitely has um, this like presence on the land. You can tell the people have lived off the Nile for many years. And a lot of the stories they tell in the hieroglyphics talks about you know, the blessings that come from the Nile and the different communities that grew, you know, around it and up and down and because of it. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's my two cents. Yeah. We don't want the Nile Delta to be ruined. It is a, it's a, a beautiful uh, uh, ecosystem and people do rely on it, even though I may currently not like what Egypt does to like journalists. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But hopefully they can find a equitable situation for Ethiopia to be able to have power. Yeah. But, should we go on to the, just go up a little bit to the north, east over to uh, China where they have the latest um, fad and uh, epidemiology? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I titled this story, The First Pandemic 2020 Coronavirus. Um, so this information came from the CDC, also from um, The Atlantic and the many different sources. Um, the Today Show actually did a lot of coverage of the coronavirus over the week, too that I was uh, fortunate to kind of see some of it visually on the ground. Um, the illness was first reported in late December 2019 in Wuhan, which is a major city in central China located about 650,000 miles of Beijing. Since then, the virus has been rapidly spreading through sick travelers and has infected people in China and nine other countries, including the U.S. The virus appears to have originated in um, a seafood wholesale market in Wuhan. The market sells fish as well as an array of other animals, including bats and snakes for consumption. And so the virus, um, according to sources, has come from the Chinese cobra and the Chinese crate, which are snakes um, that triggered the outbreak. The market seems like it was an integral piece of the puzzle. So researchers are still conducting a range of experiments, but the Wuhan market has actually been closed since January 1st. So it's nice that they were able to get to it so quickly. But, you know, um, there's many confirmed cases that have been reported. Authorities have confirmed more than 1,900 cases in China as of Saturday and internationally. A handful of cases have been confirmed throughout Asia, Australia, France, and Canada. The latest reports state that these cases have been, three cases have been confirmed in the U.S. in Washington, Illinois, and California. And right now the death toll in China stands at 56. Um, Though the first infections are potentially the result of animals to human transmission, right now, Many of the outbreaks have been caused by human to human in the hospitals. And a lot of that has uh, triggered like a really meticulous triage and infection control process. Um, people are definitely having a hard time getting to different healthcare facilities because they are currently going through a shortage of hospital beds. And they are struggling to build a new hospital to quarantine anybody who has been affected by this. The hospital, they've only been given 10 working days to build it. It's supposed to be up by February 3rd. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's pretty serious Um, because it's the infection is spreading mostly in China through the hospital. A lot of the video just like kind of showed people in airport facilities and things like that um, with these like zappers taking people's temperature on their foreheads, even allow you in and out of different facilities and institutions in China. Mm -hmm. Um, It's definitely taken a, a big turn. So 
the next part of this story is just kind of a little bit about this sort of quarantining of the city. Across the country, millions of people were heading home to see their loved ones to celebrate the Chinese New Year, despite that all of the travel platforms were being controlled. As of Thursday at 10, buses, trains and subways and ferries were stopped from leaving the city. Flights were also suspended and roads, though they weren't officially blocked, um, a closed have been have roadblocks reported and people have not been able to leave. As of today, the state has attempted to quarantine an area estimated to encompass 35 million people. So yesterday, the World Health Organization declined to declare the outbreak a public health emergency of international concern. The moderately dangerous nature nature of this uh, pathogen seems that it's definitely doing something different. And it's like the largest quarantine of human history taking place right now. So as you know, China is an authoritarian state. So this has caused um, just some like conceptual thinking of what it means to be quarantined as a state. Um, China has a political stake in the appearance of the authoritative response. The regime was chastised for a slow response and concealing information in 2003 SARS outbreak. So this time, China's action seems to be varying on the opposite direction. But China hasn't really handled a lot of their global health um, emergencies very well in the past. And a lot of advocates are skeptical about the reporting that's coming from inside and outside of the country. Shortly after the quarantine was announced, the Washington Post reported Increases in the cost of food in Wuhan and some citizens have reported empty grocery shelves and limited access to health care facilities. The basic argument for quarantining is that the in emergency scenarios, individuals rights must be sacrificed in a collective interest. In the U.S., according to James Hodge, which is a professor of health law at Arizona State University, a massive imposition like China's would be unconstitutional. Shutting everything down may help to contain the virus, but also may help spread spread it and keeping it concentrated in these crowded cities. This can create other health issues related to scarcity or resources and intensify panic. Quarantines can actually prevent treatment and detection if they are seen as punishments for reporting. You know, so it's kind of a mm-hmm. is it is it a good thing or a bad thing that they are keeping people contained? You know, it's definitely um, causing shortages in the hospital bed, the medical care, even things going in and out of the country at this point. You know, whether it's medication or resources or anything like that, uh, people are having problems like sending things to their family so they can get out or can get help. So you got to think about it from that perspective. Um, The Center of Disease Control and Prevention did expand its authority to detain people without due process in 2018, despite the concerns of some legal and human rights advocates. A coordinated global response is really the key to understanding how any pandemic can uh, be detected and how we can prevent it from spreading further. This week, scientists at the National Institute of Health reported that they're already working on a vaccine prototype, which could be available within three months. So, you know, we've talked about China quite a bit um, and all of the duress that's been going on. 2019 was quite tumultuous for for China. You know, they've been in constant duress, uh, the citizens, the leadership. Um, they had a lot of protests. Just it's just so much going on. Um, I really, honestly, is am saying a prayer for the country. Um, you have to think about it at this point. Any state that you know sows distrust in science and journalism, provoked by a lack of a solid foundation of their government or the trustworthiness in their people, you know, it's really placing itself at risk. And in this mo- at this point, it's placing the world at risk. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, I know. If I was told I couldn't leave a place even if I hadn't wanted to leave a place before right because there was a you know infectious disease going around and a government I didn't trust was the one telling me I couldn't leave <laughs> I would that would make me want to leave really leave badly more, I was like right? I didn't even want to leave and then yeah like I, you're telling me 
I can't that I'm getting out of here. I'm like, <laughs> exactly. It's hard to conceptualize, you yeah. know, what it feels like to be limited in every way possible to escape something that you feel like is taking over your life. Yeah. I mean, you got to think also 35 million people being quarantined. That's is that more possible? people than are in New York City. So it's like imagine all of New York City being told you can't leave because there's a disease going around. That's, you know, hmm. yeah, it, it's. It's terrific. I hadn't really thought. I, I, I appreciate that you uh, uh, did the summary of those. Um, uh, I think you read about is this taken from about three uh, different articles? Yeah, so? I definitely want to give like a full perspective of it. So, yeah, I never had really thought to uh, question the the quarantine uh, idea because there certainly are way, like bad ways of doing it. Right. Like quarantining people who are contagious, who are spreading something. That makes sense. But quarantining, just like a brute approach of just saying this region that does seem to not only so uh, distrust and keep people from cooperating with the measures that need to be taken to uh, to get a handle on a new disease, but also it would yeah, kind of help to spread it. When when you said the word quarantine and quarantining, I kept thinking of quarantine, like a really gross like margaret like, uh, martini you know yeah <laughs> just, uh, but- no the other gross thing like keeping you hostage <laughs> i mean i'm not saying that i don't understand the process i think it's definitely a difficult situation to be put in when such a massive number of people are being affected so quickly you know but i always tend to think on the side of resources getting into the country like if i had family that lived in china I couldn't do anything to help them. And it's so sad. It's their new year right now, too. So the the concept of travel is like, mm. you know what I mean? Like for, for not just people in China, but Chinese people around the world. Right. You know? Right. Um. So so you said 56 people have died so far. Yep. That's the count. And, and the people who have died are in China. OK. And and do we know in general the the odds of dying if you get the disease, like how difficult is it to overcome this disease in general? Well, it's really hard because right now they're still doing research right. on, you know, what the virus is like and how it's different from the previous um, breakout of uh, SARS and all the things of that nature. In the U.S., nobody's died yet. The right. symptoms are really flu-like. So it's kind of been one of those things where, you know, it, I, I imagine they would treat it similarly to like a pneumonia or something like that, you know, to a severity level. Mm. Nobody's died here. So and it is like the flu in the sense that I think for most uh, epidemiologists, what was it called? Those who study uh, diseases. Uh, echoes of the, the 19, was it 1918, 1920 Spanish flu, which mm-hmm. killed 150 million people. Uh, the flu, yeah, 1918. flu, 1918, the, the flu currently kills uh, like 35,000 Americans each year. A lot of them, I assume, are uh, are older people with compromised um, health. Right. They said that the people who are most susceptible are the young, the old. And if you have pre-existing diseases such as diabetes or high blood pressure, which make you more susceptible to other diseases as well, mm-hmm. you know, but in the flu season, it's like kind of hard to differentiate. Right. Yeah. I feel like, I mean, no disrespect to, for all the people that have um, gotten sick and have died from this, but this does kind of, I'm hoping that it's like a movie trailer that we all get like hyped up. Where it's like, <laughs> oh, shit. And then it's like, oh, the movie was like, oh, nothing new here. This is just like a. Right? Yeah, I mean, 
Absolutely. Because this, you know, we in any outbreak that we've had in the past in our lifetime, you know, Ebola and all these other different right. assorted communal disease that come from these communities that have lack of resource and um, things of that nature. They always seem to come with some sort of like other side where they're able to heal people. They're able to figure it out and at least try to get a hold on it. You know, I know with the Ebola virus, I think this last year they claim they found a cure for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that with the research, they're trying really hard, but it's just one of those things where, you know, it's containing people, keeping other people from dying. Yeah. I mean, China, they have like an authoritarian, you know, one party as they call it rule. And those things, that type of government, like these emergency situations are, I mean, are, are good use of that blanket, like, undemocratic power. So right. It's kind of like you, you got the tool in your hand big, just like yeah. use it correctly for once. Wow. It's definitely yeah. devastating. But um, yeah, so be safe out there. People wash your hands, get some rest, you know, stop eating fried chicken. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just be mindful. You know, I've seen a lot of, um, you know, I work at the Met and just seeing a lot of people walking with face masks. A lot of stores um are out there and other places are saying they're like selling out. So you know, try not to be rude and mean to Ooh, people. I want to end with end this segment with a, one question. My, when you see someone walking around with a face mask, I think this is like a, a glass half full or half empty question. Do you think they're protecting? They have a sickness <laughs> and they're protecting you, or do you think that they're spooked? I've always wondered that myself. You know, Both? I've always really been on the other side of that and thought that the person with the mask was the one that was sick. Um, which is giving them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. I guess. But would I, if I was sick, would I wear a mask? I can't tell you that. We're going to listen to some common now. Yeah, let's do that. We're going to listen to some music. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. I never knew a la, 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 a la like this. Gotta be something for me to write this. Queen, I ain't seen you in a minute. Wrote this letter and finally decide to send it. Sign, sealed, delivered for us to grow together. Love has no limit. Let's spin a slow forever. I know your heart is weathered by what studs did to you. I ain't gonna saw them cause I probably did it too. Because of you feelings I handle with care. Some niggas recognize your life but they can't handle the glare. You know I ain't the type to walk around with matching shirts. A relationship is effort. I will match your work. I want to be the one to make you happiest. It hurts you the most. They say the end is near. It's important that we close to the most high. Regardless of what happened on him, let's rely. Second, it's important we communicate and tune the fate of this union to the right pitch. I never call you my bitch or even my boo. It's so much in the name and so much more in you. 
few understand the union of woman and man. It's sex and a tingle, where they assuming it land. But that's fly by night for you in the sky, right? During these cold, shy nights, moon, you my light. If heaven had a height, you would be that tall. Ghetto the coffee shop, I see that all. Let's stick to understanding and we won't fall. For better or worse times, I hope to me you call. So I pray every day more than anything. Friends will stay as we begin to lay this foundation for a family. Love ain't simple. Why can't it be anything worth having? You work at annually. Granted, we've known each other for some time. It don't take a whole day to recognize sunshine. to the rule your live sunday morning news hour and at radio free brooklyn all right so we're going to take a a turn to some national news zoe's got a great story about some uh pharmaceuticals hi yes so i wanted to kind of check in with what's going on with the opioid epidemic because there's a lot of well-deserved anger towards the people who have engineered it and you know it's it's not a coincidence they're very powerful very wealthy people for the head of pharmaceutical companies who have pushed their products um and 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 got people addicted knowingly mm. um so so this is actually i think good news or at least maybe the start of a wave of good things happening in that regard okay so pharmaceutical executive uh and former billionaire which i guess maybe means he's not a billionaire billionaire anymore which is which is you know good to hear perhaps Mm. um yeah but so former former executive of this particle pharmaceutical company inces uh john kapoor has been sentenced to five years and six months in prison his sentencing is the culmination of a months-long criminal trial in boston's mokley u.s courthouse courthouse that resulted in the first successful prosecution of pharmaceutical executives tied to the opioid epidemic. The 76-year-old founder of Inces Therapeutics, which made and aggressively marketed the potent opioid painkiller Subseas, um, oh, sorry, he is the founder, Kapoor's 66-month prison term is substantially less than the 50, 15-year sentence recommended by federal prosecutors, but it is more than the one year requested by Kapoor's defense attorneys, who maintained the executive's innocence and stressed his old age as reason for a short prison sentence. 
Kapoor and four other executives were found guilty last year of orchestrating a criminal conspiracy to bribe doctors to prescribe the company's medication, including to patients who didn't need it. They then lied to insurance companies to make sure the costly oral fentanyl spray was covered. The painkiller, which was intended for cancer patients, could cost as much as $19,000 a month. Two other executives pleaded guilty and became cooperating witnesses. For the federal government, this was a landmark trial in which corporate executives were charged under the Racketeer Influenced and and Corrupt Organizations Act, or RICO, a charge often reserved for mob bosses and drug lords. Experts saw the trial as sending a message to drug companies that they will be held criminally accountable for their alleged role in fueling the opioid crisis. Amit Sapatwari, a physician and the assistant director of Harvard University's Program on Regulation, Therapeutics, and Law, thinks this trial will have a chilling effect on the pharmaceutical industry. Quote, it's an important warning to other pharmaceutical manufacturers and executives who may be considering pushing their products through aggressive and possibly legally dubious marketing schemes, end quote. However, he said this successful prosecution does not mean the practices that contributed to overprescribing and addiction to opioids will go away. Quote, a lot of the activities that you see within the industry that are effective are technically legal. And so if that's the case... Is this going to curb those aggressive tactics? No, but it will give second thought to pushing the boundaries, said Sarpatwari. I think this is going to be the hopefully helpful fallout of the case. All right. Wow. Yeah, that, there's a lot going on in there, isn't there? Yeah. Do, do, do you feel like this? Um, this feels like justice or just like, oh, at least we can prove that it's possible to... Uh, to actually bring charges or any legal arm to these people that clearly uh, did wrong. Well, I'm definitely glad that something is is happening. You know, a lot. I think a lot of times this stuff is clearly swept under a rug, and so many like corporate thugs get through so easy because right. I feel like you know um, pushing pharmaceuticals on anyone. You know, and all of us, our families are affected by the use of opioids. Would right. you agree? Like yeah. all of us, like everyone Nobody in the world. Nobody doesn't know someone who hasn't been affected by the opioid exactly. epidemic. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. What, what, what do you think like, like true justice or like system wide change would look like? Do you have any, any like a uh, checklist of, of how you would want to see corporate responsibility enacted in the future for other, um, other areas in which um, people are harmed? Wow. That's a good question. I mean, for me, I think um, oh, there's a lot of drugs that first need to be decriminalized. And it's deeply frustrating to me that that drugs that are far less dangerous and far less addictive than opioids are are persecuted. Yeah. Um, or prosecuted, not persecuted um, at such a aggressive level, whereas these billionaires have purposely engineered a an epidemic that is killing hundreds of thousands of people and they're getting away with it and and you know considering that there are still people in jail spending lifetime spending lifetimes in prisons for selling you know weed yeah and 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 this this billionaire pharmaceutical executive is only getting 
five what years. Was it? Five right? years. Yeah. yeah, five years. Which that's a that seems like a wrist. slap on the wrist. Yeah, yeah. And you know, and you know, he's not going to do even a majority of it. Right. Yeah. Right. And I, I, I don't want one person to have some like symbolic imprisonment. I, I want to like see something happen at every level. Right. All the time, just like, stuff. So it's like we don't like wait and then just like try to like throw some cuffs on like the one person that we can like somehow legally pin down. Yeah. Like getting through their phalanx of lawyers and appeals and whatnot. It, it, would, it would just be nice to just see normal things like like fines and removal of business licenses and things like that. Whenever you see any uh, conflicts of interest uh, yeah. being en- enacted when you have when you work in a a field of the economy that has to do with people's lives, you know? Yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly. It's almost like, you know, the way they advertise it too. I think something could be changed in the amount of advertisements that people see all the time because that stuff, like you, it's like every other commercial. It's like, even though this drug will help you, it will cause the rest of your life to die. Right. Um, But we see it so frequently. I think a lot of people depend on drugs because it's so, these type of drugs anyway, because it's just like, it's in your face all the time. Like, let me help you get either, you know, better quickly. And in the 80s, I think in the Reagan administration, they, that's when they made advertising on TV legal for pharmaceuticals. There was a time when, People understood or, or because social mores and everything changes, uh, there was a time when people were like, oh, wait, you can't ha- you can't advertise uh, like pharmaceuticals and drugs yeah. on TV because that's just kind of crazy. You're not a doctor. Like, why would you want to, like, have someone with an agenda? <laughs> right. Tell, tell these people who have uh, uh, symptoms and diseases like, you know, but then that changed. And then the world I grew up in, that was normal. Right. Yeah. And I never thought that, oh, there could be a different way of. Yeah. yeah, educating the public. And you have the the voice muttering in the background at the end, all the side effects, yeah. like right? Really quickly and really quietly, so you can't really. But then they show them. people like getting their whole mobility back, who've been like, right. <laughs> yes, for smiling years. couples with puppies and dancing dogs. outside. Yeah. yeah. Can any of you guys do a good um, disclaimer read? Oh man, I'm not. Gonna, I think, think you can. Include... <laughs> <laughs> Diarrhea, pain of the eyes, pain, pain of the eyes, pain of the ears. Yeah, medication <laughs> may result in blindness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you see the signs of any of these, please consult a doctor. Your fingers may fall off. If the nine stages of death come to you sequentially, <laughs> may cause cancer. Yeah. <laughs> it's like so extreme, you know, <laughs> and it's so regular. But I think that would be, you know, at least one tactic that could kind of combat this. Um, other type of epidemic, if you will, um, that we all deal with every day. Yeah. And I have seen, you know, on a, on a final note, people have have come out and really started protesting these big pharmaceutical companies and families. I know I've sort of stumbled upon multiple protests against the Sackler family, um, you know, at the Met, their series of protests to get the Sackler's name off the uh one one of the wings of the Met is named after the Sackler family. So they oh, just yeah. donated a bunch of money and they have their hands in all these different mm, yeah. Yeah. institutions. There's so. a big Coke st- statue right in front of the Met. Um, That's cute. Yeah. Yeah. You know, good old yeah. David Coke. Yeah. Wow. Love to see that. <laughs> <sighs> yes. Keeping our institutions alive. Yeah. All right. So what's up next, guys? Um, Let's talk about uh, San the San Antonio Express News Uh they published a piece on the euphemisms that 
the Mexican government was using uh, in how they were, uh, I don't know what words to use, ironically, (laughs) (laughs) when they were talking about immigration. Uh, The article begins, INM, which is Mexico's Immigration Enforcement Department, rescues, quote unquote, 800 Central American migrants who entered Mexico today irregularly, end quote. For many people who watched the moments with when hundreds of Mexican National Guardsmen with helmets and riled shields confronted hundreds of migrants who had been resting in the shade after walking all morning. Rescue didn't seem to be quite the right word, end quote. So that's how they opened up their, argu- their article. And while there are times when people in migration do need literal rescuing, like there have been cases when people are locked in cargo units, dehydration in the desert, uh, literally drowning in a river, it is rare that governments need to rescue people who are only put in danger because of the country's restrictive immigration policies. Uh, Another quote, the same statement Thursday from Mexico's immigration agency said migrants were taken to migration shelters, which is a step beyond the agency's previous language calling its detention centers immigration stations. Mm. And this reminded me of something else. So that article is just about how the Mexican government was using the term rescue when they were actually just talking about detaining people. Um, our government uh, uses similar euphemisms. And euphemisms used in by the government uh, for propaganda, for just normal PR uh, relations, is, is something that, that I think is worth spending a moment on. So I, I wrote up a little bit on that. The term concentration camp was originally a euphemism itself towards the end of the Boer Wars between Britain and South Africa and the Orange Free State, Britain created detention sites in an effort to make them sound less barbaric. They named them concentration camps. They were not the same style of death camps implemented by the Nazis later on, but they were detention facilities for uncharged non-military people. Euphemisms aren't just used by the president's press secretary. And remember when Trump actually had a press secretary that would like talk to people. <laughs> the mini yeah. press secretaries. And, uh, yeah. And we get used to shit like that. Like, Oh wait, we don't have a press. Sec- I mean, we have a press secretary. It's a rotating but- position. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's just no one. They just don't talk to the people anymore. And what we're used to is it. like, Oh yeah, that's normal. Exactly. Oh, okay. In, com- in conversations, people say stuff like the country is divided. And what does that actually mean? Are we just scared of alienating people? If we say the country is divided by racism, by sexism, global warming got changed to climate change to make it sound better. Bombing civilians can be called pacification action. Other ones are like alternative facts, the alt-right, both subtle shifts or not so subtle. A new one you may not have heard of yet is the term a classical liberal, which just means conservative. (laughs) And even conservative has become a euphemism in itself because Conservative used to mean something like someone who likes tradition or is skeptical of big change. But if you compare the voting records of most conservatives of the Republican Party, the only thing that is consistent is lower taxes, not actual conservative ideologies like fiscal responsibility, yada, yada, yada. So we're surrounded by all these euphemisms. At the border, people are being treated like an invading military force. People fleeing violence, poverty, or just trying to get home do not need to be rescued by Mexican or U.S. border agents, they just need for us to stop using their lives as political tools 
and using weird misdirecting <laughs> euphemisms all the time. Language matters. Yeah. Language is really important and really powerful. And yeah. Does, do any of you have any favorite um, euphemisms that people use to um I was thinking about what um, white privilege privilege recently and I was like, is that a euphemism? Because like racism doesn't really seem like a privilege that I have. <laughs> it's like like my white privilege it makes it almost seem good, you know, because privilege is kind of like a nice word. Mm. That's interesting. I mean, I think euphemisms were definitely derogatory in the beginning, like the whole premise of it has always been that way. But I don't know what's a common one. That we can dissect besides white privilege. Um, <laughs> toot instead of heart. <laughs> there we go. That's a good way to say it. Just because like actually, one. toot sounds like like simple and small and kind of cute, right? Yeah. Whereas fart sounds like <laughs> barbaric. Or is my mic on? Oh, hey, now Jasmine. my mic is on. Hello, hello. Oh, yeah. So, hello. Uh, Jasmine, uh, our co-host, in was in, in training up until now uh, for for the radio station. Yeah, so I'm back. I'm here. Good, good afternoon. Um, but as far as euphemisms, like there's a lot of things like uh, like referring to people who are not cisgender and heterosexual as like having an alternative lifestyle okay that's like a good one. there's you know it's like it's a it's something that covers up a nasty like idea that you have about a group of people but you're trying to couch it in nicer language okay or like um for people that have different types of disabilities there's like a euphemism treadmill they call it where eventually mm. <laughs> the word that people use like the is offensive and so then there become there's a new word that replaces it but then that becomes like outdated and offensive yeah i remember um that when i was growing up they would say that a kid was retarded yeah if they had a mental illness but you it would like a blanket statement like you don't right. exactly know what that means but there's something wrong with that person yeah and know? then it's that becomes a slur you know and it, it makes sense that like as times change like language evolves like it makes sense to change especially if the meaning people give to it yeah. becomes something other than what it was originally meant for wow so i think um on a lighter note one of my favorite ones that i encountered recently was um when gwyneth paltrow and chris martin divorced and they termed it um consciously uncoupling oh yeah they said oh, we're consciously yeah, uncoupling. Yeah. Oh there's a whole God. book about that yeah conscious uncoupling i like that like i'm gonna start consciously uncoupling from things now instead of that's a positive spin on it though yeah but but on a more a slightly more serious note i think companies tend to when they're screwing over their employees like mass firings or something you know they'll use words like we're downsizing or, or even saying something like we're, we were letting people go instead of just like, <laughs> like you're releasing firing. them. Yeah, yeah. It's like, Oh, we're letting you go. And it's like, no, you're forcing me out. Actually. At mm -hmm. one point I worked at this place before I moved to New York and I worked there with my boyfriend and they told him they were eliminating his position. Yeah. <laughs> right? Right. And I was in management. And then like two days later, the new guy, Jane like came and he was, he, instead of a manager, he was a director. Mm -hmm. oh. Like that was the, the, right it's totally yeah. different things obviously but exactly um, job, right? Yeah. right exactly human resources is full of uh euphemistic right you know like yeah trying to yeah. let you down softly but you're getting bludgeoned right. like for real yeah <laughs> so. it's time for me to take a quick one 
Yeah, yeah. Let's get some tunes um, to to alleviate this linguistic uh, tumble we've just been dancing in. <laughs> All right. This next track is called "The Land." It's a remix uh, with the Roots and Gary Clark Jr. Stay tuned to Objection to the Rule. This is my land, I'm right around a 20 mile marker The sky seems darker where I stand My only partner is the bullseye on my back Courtesy of the archer, a reminder That life is a limited time offer I'm young, black and a legend And considered a weapon by some Actually threatened by one African essence The real bodies are buried with the secrets in the silo For people in denial or the linkers in the bio The objects in the mirror are closer than they might see The shadow of doubt disappears at light speed and dreams just crossed into a tight heat rope from trees hanging since 1619. Strange the way the danger could inspire major good. I play a power chord and there goes the neighborhood. They after me as if they want to capture me, but did they manufacture me to be another casualty? It's wild. Paranoid and pissed off. Now that I got the money, 50 acres in a model day, right in the middle of truck country. I told you there goes the neighborhood Now Mr. Williams ain't so funny I see you looking out your window Can't wait to call the police on me And I know you think I'm up to something I'm just eating, I was still hungry This is mine, I legit, I ain't even that you can't take it from me I remember when they used to tell me Run, run, go back where you come Welcome back to Objection to the Rule. That song was rocking, right? That's great. Yeah, I love, <laughs> I love, I love the the roots and like getting anything you can do live is is really dope. All right, Jasmine. So why don't you give us your uh, first national? I mean, I'm sorry, local news story. Uh, okay, so this is a story that um popped into my consciousness via Twitter because there was an anonymous um letter recently that a bunch of New York City transit cops um, submitted to the Coalition for the Homeless that had made some pretty sweeping allegations about the subway diversion program. Mm -hmm. And this past week on Tuesday, um, council members criticized the mayor's subway diversion program um, by saying in the last in the first six months, it hasn't really been doing what they claimed it was supposed to do. So last summer, the city introduced a program which is supposed to try to Instead of having homeless people get summonses, it's trying to encourage them, in their words, to um, take advantage of shelter resources. Mm. So the police, like you'll see police officers um, issuing homeless people summonses for things like lying outstretched across different train seats. Okay. um, For example. 
So city officials are saying that the initiative is to keep people out of the criminal justice system and moving them off the subways and into housing. In the first five months of the program, so from July to November, 1,296 summonses were issued to homeless people. 37% were expunged. In more than 60% of the cases, the homeless person chose a summons over accepting services. So on the same day, on Tuesday, Human.NYC, so it's a group that focuses on street homelessness, released the anonymous letter that I mentioned. Um, The officers attacked the program, calling it blatant discrimination against the homeless and that they're being forced to carry out things that they don't really feel are ethical. Um, The chief of transit, Edward Dilatore, argued that if the program didn't exist, then people who break these subway rules would just get a summons. So in his eyes, he's like, we're at least giving them an option, like take the summons or go into a shelter. Mm. Um, So he says the bottom line is these are human beings and they deserve the help. We can't overlook them. We have to do what we can to help them. But many questions were left unanswered about the long-term impact of the program. Officials said 305 people were transported to shelters as a result of the initiative, but they couldn't say how many even spent a night there or how long they stayed if they did go to a shelter. So is did you really help the person if like they went to the shelter and then, and then left, left within right an out. hour and then they're right back on the street? Like what was the, you know, what's happening with these individuals long term? Council members, council members, ooh, said city officials should have focused their efforts on opening more safe havens, which are shelters that offer more privacy and fewer rules than traditional facilities and also more permanent housing for the homeless. Council member Donovan Richards, who chairs the Public Safety Committee, said the program seemed to be coercive and was forcing people to accept services that they have already rejected, such as traditional shelters. So this write-up was by um, Mirela Ivarak for The Gothamist, if you'd like to read the full article. So, yeah, it's um, hmm. it really does seem like it's more like an aesthetic thing of, oh, we're removing these individuals. And if you're interested in reading more, like you can read the full anonymous letter that Transit Police um, anonymously submitted to diversioniscoercion.nyc. Um, There's also a video that they have at that site that shows you one of these um, interactions between a homeless person and the police like on the subway in real time. And it's Mm. it's pretty disturbing, you know, like they're stopping the train, telling the conductor to stop the train from moving. The train is mostly empty. You see one woman like sitting on like an empty subway car like she's sitting straight up. She's not lying down. She just has like two bags with her. And they stand in the door, tell her to get off. And it's like, what happens if she said no? Like, this is someone who decided under pressure, like, to go with the police officer and step off of the train. But Mm. what would that escalate to if she said, no, I don't want to get off? Yeah. You know, and like, people are already aware. Typically, if you're homeless and you've been homeless for a while, like, you know what your options are. A lot of these shelters are at full capacity so where are these individuals actually being taken for mm-hmm. how long? And are you actually helping them or just bullying people, basically? Yeah, it, it, it is stunning the lengths that city governments will go to make being homeless illegal. 
Yeah. It's like you've got to ask yourself, what? why does this woman not have a right to sit on this train? Why does not having a home make riding subways illegal? It's ju- It's just kind of mind-boggling it's like people have decided it's offensive well to just just and... to play devil's advocate because i feel like it's necessary for us to have a good discussion yeah right i was on the train the other day and there was a, um i guess he was a homeless man i can't tell you know and, and the train was quiet and then i seen a woman get on with her children and then this man started shouting profusely um and we could understand what he was saying you know sometimes people shout when they're on drugs or something like that and you don't really understand but it was scary like i even didn't have my headphones that day and was a little bit like, am I about to get off this train or something like that? I think in an incident when something's happening to the person, like if they are in the middle of a, you know, uh, they wigging out or something like that. And it's, you know, it, people are nervous. That's different than someone who's just sitting there or sleeping there because it's cold. and They have nowhere else to go. Right. And that, and that seems, uh, you know, that's, because this man ha- is like is is dealing with other issues, right. you know, it's not inherently because he's homeless. Although obviously there's, I mean, uh, between. It's, it's kind of a hard balance, right? I'm not justifying him getting picked up by the police, right. but I am saying that if he was removed from the train, I could understand why. Right? You know what I mean? Right? Yeah. Yeah. What do you I mean, guys think? I, I think that there's a. I think we have a problem in our society with the police being the main and the only arbiter like when there's conflicts that's like first of all because if someone is having a mental health crisis or they're having a drug crisis there's people that are trained professionals that know how to de-escalate the situation and how to best help everyone i do not really see police officers as being that a lot of these people are young Mm -hmm. like even in the in the anonymous letter that the people like they're cops themselves and they're like you have a lot of young new to the force people Mm -hmm. that they're being told like your job is to bring in a certain number of arrests like handcuffing people putting them over the radio as arrests and then bringing them into a transit command when why can't you just send an outreach team directly if your goal is to truly help the person yeah. So, yeah. And I think that it can be trick. I don't I don't think it's always great to point out like sometimes the most extreme case of what might be happening, because with all these hundreds of people, like they're not being singled out because they're presenting a danger, you know. So I think sometimes that people will, will go like not that that's necessarily what you're you're doing, but I think a lot of people will be like, oh, this wide sweeping big net that we're casting is justified because there's a chance that this person might have a problem and might be dangerous. Mm. So, you know, it's, Mm. you know, and why is it okay to then put someone who's already vulnerable in increased danger to remove them because you're uncomfortable for a brief amount of time? Like I don't. Mm, Yeah, certainly. Uh, Should we, we got five minutes left. Should we do a quick, uh, overview of this story that I think is fairly interesting. Yeah, go for it. Uh, which one of us uh, did the the write up on the? I think Emily might have done this one. Okay, well, I'll I'll I'll, pop, I'll lily pad my way through it. Um, but thank you for that story. That that was a, a very good one. And there's a lot of questions of like, how do you deal with um, the tragedy of uh, people being homeless and untreated mental illness and whatever reason that you may have. Okay, so New York City votes to ban cashless stores. Can you imagine growing up like hearing that? You know, like yeah. being like ten years old in the nineties or whatever, just like what wait, what do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
As many New Yorkers have likely noticed, there's been a recent trend in stores, often fast food businesses going cashless, i.e. accepting card payment for transactions. Some of the reasoning I've seen put forth uh, for this push for this push cites increased efficiency, safety for employees because you don't have money that you, people can take from you and a reduced carbon footprint for transportation of the cash. But a glaring issue at the heart of this is that if a business does not accept cash payments or any potential customer needs to have a digital or card-based form of payment, which requires a bank account and or a credit card, and not everyone has those. So the New York City Council voted earlier this week to require stores and restaurants to accept cash payments, saying that businesses who don't are discriminating against the hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers who don't have bank accounts or credit cards, or what City Council Speaker Corey Johnson calls the underbanked. I think that's I'm great that City Council acted on that because that's a, that's a very clear d- description of um, not just income inequality, but like how people of different classes have different lives that we need to all, you know, fit together. Yeah. I think that's good news. I think we've talked about it before. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely important for us to keep um, each other in mind when we make decisions that affect everyone. Like it's, there's so many different levels in New York that people are existing in. Cause I'm not sure if I know too many people who are actually doing New York and doing it well. I feel like <laughs> most of us are out here existing, yeah, like you know what I mean? And there's many times that we could be in that, that bankless group of people. I'm speaking for myself. Yeah. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well go for credit unions, um, credit unions, non, uh, nonprofits. Uh, they're not as evil as, you know, the big old, big old people that advertise for us and own all the stadiums and everything where we see their names. All right. So are we going to make it to the good news? Yeah, we got. Well, I I don't think so. No, we, we have what a minute and a half. Well, let's just say I'll give you the beginning. I'll put the rest on our Facebook page. OK, Arizona's largest electricity uh, electric utility reverses its po- position and aims to go carbon free. So Arizona Public Service, the largest electric unit. A utility in the state spent almost 40 million to defeat a legislative push for renewable energy in 2018. And now just two years later and under the new chief executive, they're voluntarily planning to go carbon free. So earlier this week, the utility announced this plan to be entirely fossil fuel by 2050. And by 2030, it plans on getting two thirds of electricity from nuclear and renewable resources. So to be continued. Yeah. And we could fit that in. I'm sorry. Thank you for jamming that good news in because that's that that is great news. Yeah. You need good news, man. Definitely. Well, I want to thank everybody for contributing to the script this week. I think we got through a lot of wonderful uh, topics and um, always good to engage with one another and discuss these things. Open up the minds of our listeners. Any final thoughts? Thanks for tuning in. Yeah. Keep it locked on Radio Free Brooklyn. All right, that's it. This for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thanks for listening. You can catch our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on the Radio Free Brooklyn app or iTunes podcast. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. We're going to play you out some music. Uh, this final track. Or are you going to do the studio reads? Which one are you going to do, Matt? Um, let's just say goodbye because I think we're gone.